Welcome to This Must Be The Place, a podcast about communities and the people who build, support, and live in them. I'm your host, Greg Dunlap. Our guest today is David Dylan Thomas, a content strategy advocate at Think Company in Philadelphia and the host of the Cognitive Bias podcast. David gave a talk this year at Confab called a Conversation Designed to Save Civil Discourse. And it's hard to think of a topic that's really more pressing for our communities right now. Um, so David, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Glad to be here. So you're a content advocate. What does that kind of mean? What is your job description? So I am in charge of really uh, helping uh, the company I work at, Think Company, which is an experience design firm, um, really help uh, let the world know that they are good at content strategy. <laughs> so it's sort of a you know uh, lead gen business development kind of role. But I'm here to tell the story of you know how we use content strategy to help our clients. Cool. Um, so. Your talk at Confab was about civil discourse and creating and designing around civil discourse. Like, how would mm -hmm. you? I feel like I feel like we all know what civil discourse is when we see it, but like, how would you like define co conversation that is civil? I mean, when I think civil, I think respectful, right? You have two mm -hmm. parties, mm -hmm. and they may not agree, but they what they can agree to is that each of them are human beings that are worthy of respect. Um, and there's a, uh, a an assumption that like there's a great phrase um, Aaron Sorkin uses in a lot. You can find it in you know his different works. And it's two people talking. And at one point, one of them will say, uh, "Let's assume we're both good at our jobs." I think civil <laughs> discourse assumes that we're both good at our jobs, right? And right. it isn't you know it's less likely than that we're going to devolve into name calling, right? Um, and you know maybe even we aren't necessarily there to try to convince the other person that we're right so much as we're there to make sure that we're hearing each other and we understand each other's point of view. Like, I think that's the ideal, but at the, at, at a bare minimum, like you're, you're not going to devolve into name calling because you're not there to hurt the other person. You're there to um, respect the other person and to hear them out. And if both parties walk away feeling respected, even if they don't agree at the end of that conversation, I would consider that a civil conversation. It's, it's really about intent, intent, isn't it? Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, um, you you gave some interesting um, some interesting examples in your talk of how to drive that. For instance, you talked about um, should questions versus how questions, which I found really mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, that's based on an experiment where you show an audience a uh, image of a senior citizen behind the wheel of a car, and you can ask the audience, uh, "Should this person drive this car?" And what you will get is a policy discussion with some people saying, oh, old people are bad at everything. Don't let them drive. And other people saying, that's ageist. How dare you? People should do what they want. And all you're going to learn by the end of that conversation is who's on what side. Now, it turns out you can show that exact same photo to another audience and ask them, how might this person drive this car? And what you'll get is a design discussion, right? And someone might say, well, what if we moved the clutch? Or what if we changed the shape of the dashboard? And what you'll learn by the end of that conversation is several different ways that that person might be able to drive that car. All I did was change it from a should question to a how question, and you get a completely different conversation. So at a bare minimum, that's what I mean when I think of like designing the conversation. You get the conversation that you design for. I mean, what is it about should? I mean, I mean, I guess it's that should is about offering opinions and how is about offering solutions. Would you say that that's accurate? Oh, absolutely. Should implies judgment, right? Should right. implies that there's a law written down somewhere and all we have to do is go look up, well, should they do that? Well, let's see what the rigid hierarchical belief system says. How is more about um, collaboration and saying, okay, 
I might have a piece of the puzzle. You might have a piece of the puzzle. Maybe if we work together, we can get more of the puzzle and figure out how to do this thing. It's a completely different uh, set of assumptions that you're walking into that conversation with. It reminds me of another thing I've I've heard about in other communities, which is sort of the idea of directing things at yourself rather than the other person, like I versus you, like I did, Mm. I I think this versus you did this kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like people also talk about working the problem and not, you know, working each other, right? Like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you focus on, hey, we're both here to bring our perspectives to this problem or issue or concept that's outside of ourselves, right? Then it's less personal. It's less about ego. And it's more about, okay, have we gotten, you know, what you're getting rated on isn't how good do you look or did you win? What you're being rated on is, did you get any closer to solving the problem, right? And that takes the ego out of it. And I think that's something that's very difficult for us when we have these conversations because they're very tied to identity. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Like the idea that these are tied to identity about like our visions of who we are, right? Because I mean, I, I feel like that's part of a big thing. And you and you talk about wanting to win when you're having discussions too. I feel like all of that is tied together in a lot of ways in the discussions that we see happening all over the place today. Absolutely. I mean, there's an experiment where people would hook uh, the subjects up to an fMRI machine, which could sort of tell you where the blood was flowing in the brain and kind of what parts of the brain were being activated uh, when different concepts were introduced. And when you introduced like a concept uh, that challenged, you know, the legitimacy of their favorite politician, right? If it was a Hillary supporter, some kind of like anti-Hillary content, if it was a Trump supporter, some kind of anti-Trump content, the part of their brain that lit up was the part that had to do with identity. And the idea is that when you challenge someone on their political beliefs, you're not challenging them, you're not challenging them on some abstract political ideology. You are challenging them. Like when you insult, insult Trump to a Trump supporter, you're not insulting Trump, you're insulting them, right? Um, and same thing with you know, a, a Biden supporter, right? You're not insulting Biden, you're, you're insulting them. Uh, so that's why we are, our heart rates increase so much when we have these discussions is because we feel like we're being physically attacked. No, no, that's all really interesting. And, you know, it kind of ties into something else that was in your talk that's, that I feel like feeds into this, which is, you know, you point out that you can actually design the applications that we use to promote civil discourse in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Like you talked about like Reddit versus medium as an example. Sure. And I think if we take the analogy of like uh, a restaurant, right? If we were to really, I mean, if you can remember being in a restaurant, I'll, I'll give you a moment <laughs> to do that. <laughs> but um, if you're in a really nice restaurant with soft music and beautiful tablecloth and the design of the restaurant is gorgeous and this nice silverware um, and everybody's dressed up, like you, it wouldn't occur to you that here's a place where you should drop the F-bomb as loudly as possible, right? But if you're in, say, a dingy bar and the music's really loud and everything's kind of grimy, you might actually think that that environment wants you to drop the F-bomb, right? So we're used to the idea of the environment affecting our conversation in real, you know, in, in, in meat space. But when it comes to online, the same thing is true, right? If you look at Medium, uh, there there's this pristine typography and spareness and this sort of elegance and these cool greens and blues. Um, and it makes you feel like I should really up my game here if I want to like respond to a comment or something, or if I want to post something. In fact, they don't even use the word post. They use the word publish, which on all on its own feels more important than just a post. Um, if you look at Reddit or uh, YouTube, the comment section there, it looks like a you know someone hacked it together in GeoCities, like zero <laughs> design influence, right? Yeah. Um, 
And that place, like the vibe I get off of that is like, we put no effort into how this place looks. So you need to put no effort into how you conduct yourself here. Um, yeah. I mean, one of my, my pet kind of topics for the last several years is that, you know, people involved in technology don't design things with intention towards how they're going to be mm. used. Right. And, you know, this, this like feeds into that. It's like, it's, we're, we're creating these platforms for interaction with no intention towards the types of interaction we're, we're, we are promoting or making happen. Well, think about the user story that went into creating those two comment sections, right? Um, it feels like the, you know, the user story that went into creating the YouTube comment section was as, as a, you know, YouTube, uh, you know, subscriber, uh, uh, I want to be able to talk about and respond to the content I see so that I can feel good about myself. I mean, <laughs> that's right. really how a lot of that comes off. And you can almost imagine that there was another clause in the user statement or the user story for like the medium, which would be something like, you know, as a medium user, I want to be able to comment and respond to what I see, you know, so that I can be heard and, uh, you know, contribute to, um, a beneficial, like pro-social conversation, right. That there was some extra clause around like the type of conversation that they wanted mm -hmm. to have there and like the outcome. And that is a lot of sort of, if you look at design justice and a lot of other movements that are kind of around inclusive design, a lot of them are saying that, you know, and it's another version of talking about like designing with intent. It's not just, hey, I want the user to accomplish this task, but I'm also going to think about the outcome of this task at a, you know, social level, right? At a societal level, at a policy level, like what is, what is actually going to happen if it becomes easy to do this thing? That's a really important question that we forgot to ask when we were so busy making it easy to do things. Yeah. And I think it speaks to a lot of the things that we use to measure success, right? Because we're, mm -hmm. we're used to looking to measure success about things like engagement and, and we need, and we mm -hmm. like those like numbers and charts to feed up to the VCs, right? You know, like mm -hmm. we got this many comments or we got this many interactions and stuff like that, but none of that is qualitative, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's, it's what Erica Hall likes to call, um, uh, shareholder centered design over right. user centered design. And I think that, you know, I think she nails it on the head there because we can't have these conversations without really talking about capitalism at some point. Yeah. Because <laughs> sure. if you ask Absolutely. yourself, why do I design it this way versus that way? Um, it's because, you know, you have in your head, oh, I will get more clicks if people are angry, right? <laughs> I will yeah. get more clicks if people are yelling at each other on my platform, which, A, isn't necessarily true, <laughs> right? Um, there's all sorts of science around like what motivates people to share content and anger does it, but then so does wonder and hope. So right. that's kind of suspect. And then the notion that a lot of this is driven by wanting people's eyeballs so that you can sell ads against those eyeballs. There is no science <laughs> to support that um, online ads work right? In the sense of, oh yeah, I sold this many ads and therefore I, I shipped that many more products or got that many more customers. There's a whole other conversation we can have around something called selection effects, but the long and the short of it is, hey, you have that ad there. Um, do you know that if you didn't have that ad there, people wouldn't just find your product organically because they were still searching for shoes. Maybe they would have found shoes anyway, right? Sure. So, and every time they've done experiments around this, there's a famous one where, um, uh, Bing and uh, I think it was eBay were having a fight. And so eBay stopped selling um, uh, ads on um, on Bing for a couple of weeks. And during the time that there were no 
ads, right? Ad 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 results for um, eBay. The ad you know driven links obviously went down, but then the traffic from organic links went up by the exact same amount. <laughs> wow, that's so really it's interesting. Like, really. You've been wasting millions, tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> and then, you know, the online ad industry went to back just doing the same thing again. It's, it's a whole thing. But the, the, the point is, what's driving us from a capitalist perspective to design for conflict isn't even necessarily a good idea as, as capitalism. It's not even good capitalism. We just think it is. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, you know, of course, you're also when you're designing things that way, you're opening them up, as we've seen so often in the last several years to be gamified, basically. Oh, yeah. Like the incentives, like if, if Facebook didn't work the way Facebook did, there would be no point in rushing trolls coming in and trying to game it. Um, right, exactly. And I talk, I, I, I talk about um, a platform called uh, Poll.is, Polis. And it was used by this amazing group in Taiwan called VTaiwan which um, the short version is that there was a bunch of protests in Taiwan and the government actually decided to work with the protesters and came up with this approach to policy that would let them uh, sort of crowdsource uh, ways to talk about an issue in a civil way and then turn that into implementable policy initiatives. And one of the key things, one of the key steps in that process was to put a bunch of opinions out to the public. But the masterstroke is, they would put the opinion out, and it might be something like, um, I believe that um, Uber drivers should have to get a license to be Uber drivers. Um, and rather than have a reply button there where people could then sort of say something terrible, right, to sort of right. drive you know people crazy, as trolls do, there was no reply button. All you could do was say yes or no or pass, right? And you could then post your own like solution, but... The power of removing that reply button, like that design decision is incredible because now if I want to troll you by posting some hateful reply, I can't because there's no reply button. Or if I want to post something hateful just to get a bunch of outraged replies, I can't because there's no reply button. All you're doing is driving people closer and closer towards some kind of solution because you can take the yeses and the noes and start to understand, okay, well, all these people agree to this one or all these people in group A and group B agree to this other one. And those opinions, if you really want different groups to agree, have to be more nuanced and subtle. So there's all sorts of design decisions that went into that platform and that process, which deliberately aim toward consensus and nuance and move away from trying to win the argument or trying to be bombastic or extreme. Um, it's interesting. No, when I heard you describing that, that was the exact thing I was thinking of. It's that it's that this is going to drive, as you say, it's going to drive towards consensus. It's going to drive people towards um, towards finding something that works for the most number of people. Yeah, and it's very hard to game that system as an outside political agent, you know, meant to disrupt because all you can really do as a bot is say yes or no. <laughs> like, right. like, I don't know how that's going to really, you know, help you versus, hey, I'm going to post some inflammatory stuff here and get people really enraged and, and, and spread a lot of misinformation. Um, another thing I've been thinking about, especially as it goes to the internet, is that people have talked a lot about like sort of anonymity and how anonymity play, you know, the decision of a platform or a community of some type to anonymize their users plays into the lack of civility in discourse. I mean, have you found that to be true? So this is actually a myth. 
Um, and we know because so many platforms where you use your real name have horrible, horrible discourse. So the famous example is uh, Monica Lewinsky gave a TED talk a few years ago. And on TED, when you comment, you have to use your real name. And that comment thread is one of the most toxic things ever posted to the web. So much so that they, for the first time ever, basically had to shut down the comment section on TED. And then they posted a whole blog post about why they did it and like what the implications are. The misconception is that when you are online posting, you are worried about how people see you. And therefore, if you use, you're yes, li- less likely to use your real name. And that's going to influence like how you, um, you know, how you post. What's actually been shown to influence how you post isn't how you see yourself, but how you see the other person, or really whether or not you see the other person. So uh, Trisha Prabhu uh, is an amazing story. This was a 14-year-old who um, got entered into the um, uh, Google Science Fair uh, with a project called Rethink. Um, and what it did was it would sort of detect when you were about to post something terrible. So you try to post something hateful to, let's say, Twitter. And it would sort of realize from the language, this was probably a hateful statement. And it would pop up right before, you know, you actually, it actually posted. It would say, hey, it looks like what you're about to post could be hurtful. Are you sure you want to post it? Now in her trial run, and this is with adolescents, right? Not exactly the most, you know, impulse control, you know, savvy group. 90, I think 97% of them didn't post, Right. And yes, that leaves 3% who are like, hell yeah, I want to hurt somebody. But 97% of them basically weren't evil. They were thoughtless, right? It didn't occur to them that there was a human being on the other end of that platform, right? And these are people who weren't using their real names. So it isn't whether or not you see yourself when you're posting. The real question is, do you understand that there's, there's a human being on the other end when you post? That's the thing that's going to influence whether you're civil or not more than anonymity. It's interesting because, you know, this, this ties into this topic of like, and we brought this up a little bit earlier, but like technology solutions to human problems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or human solutions to technology problems or like this interaction of humans and technology. And it really seems like, it really seems like they're, they're, well, one, there are things that people could be doing that they're not, but also mm-hmm. B, there is a level of this that is just human nature that we have to figure out how to deal with. Like, it's not just either one of those things. Yeah. And I think that there's a, a, a misconception around technology and this just comes from my training, but like I am trained to think of technology as the how, right? I have a thing I want to do. How do I do that? The how is the technology. So to me, language is a technology. It was developed thousands of years ago, right? In multiple ways, and there's multiple versions of it, but it was there to help do things like coordinate a mammoth hunt, right? Like I need a way to communicate with you something, right? So I'm going to invent this thing. So, you know, a stick, right, can be technology. So I try not to, and, and these days we tend to think of tech as something that is digital. Like we, we tend to you know, make that digital versus analog and, you know, as, as how we think about these things. But the fact of the matter is you're always going to be using technology to solve human problems. The question is when you are developing that technology, how much do you understand about humans? Right? So to me, it becomes more about thinking about what is the makeup of a design team, right? Is it just people who understand the technology or is it also made up of people who understand the humanity? And who understand the history. Like, I would love to have a historian on a tech team. I would love to have a behavioral um, scientist on a tech team. I would love to have a civil justice, social justice worker on a tech team, right? Like, people who understand people 
are just as important to the outcome of that design as people who understand design. Like that to me is kind of where you want to go with that whole humans versus technology thing. It's more, well, you need both, <laughs> right? Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I, I feel like I see some of that starting to change, but I also feel like in the largest platforms that we're discussing that it, that, that turning those ships is going to be very difficult. Yeah. And, and honestly, I don't know. I see it kind of going two ways, right? Like this is going to get complicated. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I see progress kind of on two tracks, right? And so I'll use the, uh, the Oscars as an example. So there's the Oscars so white campaign, which is sort of dutifully pointing out that yes, in fact, Oscars are so white and you know, one of the ways Oscar tries to, uh, the Academy tries to deal with that is to change the makeup of its heavily old, heavily white voting body. Um, and you start to see some back and forth with that. You sort of have Moonlight winning and all these sort of great, you know, uh, nominations happening. And, you know, and then it goes back to being something super white the next year. Like it's a lot of back and forth, but it's very slow because you're right. It is very hard to uh, change old institutions. And at the same time, you have a track that's around saying, why do we need the Oscars? Let's just have our own damn awards, right? Right. And if you look at like something like, and I swear to God, this is true, the MTV Movie Awards, right? Right, right. <laughs> Who are like giving out awards for same-sex kisses long before the Oscar, <laughs> like even acknowledged, <laughs> right? Like this was a thing, right? Like there's, it's, it's a different generation saying, let's make our own thing. Um, and I feel like you kind of need both because- there's this weird tension of like it really being important when, you know, a black, like when we get our first, you know, um, uh, director winning a black person winning for best director, like, which I don't still get how that hasn't happened. Um, (laughs) when we, when we get that, that's going to be a big deal, but it's also needs to be a big deal. when we say, wait, we can build our own institutions, right. That aren't founded on the notion of inequality that aren't founded on and built from, you know, notions of slavery. Um, so I feel like at an institutional, it's the same thing. You're going to have Facebook and how long and how it survives. There's all sorts of factors that go into that, but it was founded with very, very, very capitalist intent, like traditional exploitative capitalist intent. And it's going to be very hard to shift that if at all possible. Then, then you have something like, let's say DuckDuckGo, which was founded with a privacy as its, you know, founding principle. And it's a working business model, right? This thing makes a very good amount of money. Um, but it's, it was GDPR compliant on day one, right? <laughs> it doesn't have right. to suddenly shift gears because the world is changing. No, it already decided what its values were and they were a different set of values. Now, how that plays out, you know, do you have those that, that rise? How long, how long is all that going to take and how is that actually going to plan? I'm not sure because that's why I'm saying this is complex. Later over all of this, going back to our discussion of like what happens, what change happens quickly and slow, a lot of social change seems to happen quickly, but you find out, no, you've been just sort of like putting stuff on the camel's back for decades. And now you finally put that last straw and the whole thing collapses. And like I feel like that's basically be, happening right now in our well, that's, city. Okay, and, and I, I want to be very cautious around that because, you know, like black skepticism is a thing that's been well-earned over centuries of false promises. So yes, I yes. would love for that to be true. And there is evidence to suggest that this, this would be like that, but that, but that, yeah, that could be that where it's sort of like, Hey, this is not the first black man who's been killed by the cops, but 
we've had a whole bunch of work, real hard work being done by the Black Matter Black Lives Matter movement over the past decade, right? I don't want to discount that. No, of course. And not. we have a rare set of circumstances where people have nothing to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, no, that's um, a very, a and, very and, interesting and cognizant point. Right. And far less to lose than usual. Right. right. So but but all of which to say this could be that sort of catastrophic tipping point where the boat can't ride itself anymore because just too much has happened. And you and again, you could see that happening with a Facebook, with an Amazon. Do we get to the point where those companies have so much weight in one direction that the the tip is catastrophic, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I really don't know. I would sort of love to sort of uh, catastrophize in favor of like the downfall of some of these companies or the forced change around some of these companies. But um, but the truth is it's complicated. Yeah, I mean it's 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 I mean because you're right. These companies are here to stay at least in the short to midterm. I think we all know, and it, it really does seem like there needs to be some mix of you know. It, it, I had I had a discussion I remember recently with somebody with somebody who worked in government around the time and they were working in gov- in federal government around the time that Trump was hired and it, a big topic there was can we continue to work in federal government under this administration right mm-hmm. and and it's there's there's an idea that like these you can't just abandon these things, right? Like everybody, everybody of conscience saying I'm out of here doesn't help anything. Um, but they need people on the inside advocating for change. But on the other hand, we need people out in the streets too. Like it seems like both of those things have to happen. Yeah. And it's complex because, you know, you can't tell from the outside when something has become so corrupt that it can't be saved. Right. Right. So you look at the police force in Camden, New Jersey, that had become so corrupt uh, and they had like budget shortfalls that got to the point where the thing that made the most sense, or at least the thing that you could get political will behind, and that's a whole other factor is political will. The thing you could get political will behind is just basically fire everybody and then rehire the ones who don't suck, right? (laughs) (laughs) Which is essentially what happened. And then fund with, I mean, going back to intent, fund with intent, right? So in a sense, they defunded the police, but in a sense, they then refunded the police, but with a completely different uh, operating system, as it were, where it was, okay, the goals now and the role of police is going to be defined in part by the community. Like one of the master strokes they did was to say, okay, we are going to rehire, but in order to be rehired, you need to be trained in this, that, and the other. Right, and you need to, and you need to qualify. Like here are the the um, the metrics around how you need to qualify, or the the hurdles you need to jump, the hoops you need to jump through, and they let the community decide what some of those hoops were going to be. They said to the community, "What do you want police to be like?" And then that became the template for, okay, if you want to get rehired, you need to be like this. That to me is what a healthy or at least healthier interaction between the police as an institution and any community that they are policing needs to look like. Right, because now you're thinking not about um, some sort of, I don't know, hypermasculine, super capitalist, like you <laughs> right, know, right. War, warrior kind of approach to policing. Instead, you're thinking about okay, there is again, not being making it about identity, but making it about okay, what's the problem we need to solve here? Okay, a community has these needs. How do we solve for those needs? In some cases, it makes sense for it to be a person showing up with a gun. But for most of them, that isn't going to help. So how do we think about all these other needs that we've been assuming the person with the gun should be in charge of? But in fact, maybe it's about putting some money towards all these other needs 
And maybe that looks like not someone who needs to show up in response to a crisis, but a fundamental system that provides in a way where the crisis never happens. That's the discussion that I think is really interesting right now is how much closer do we get to systemic change that makes some of these, you know, that makes the the police in the modern sense of the word obsolete, right? Because now people aren't in a position where it makes sense to do dangerous shit. And, you know, that stuff all ties back to, you know, it's one of the reasons why I found the topic of talking about communities and how we manage and build communities mm-hmm. so interesting is because all of this stuff is tied up to what do we want our communities to be and look like? Or have we even thought about that question at all? Right. And I, 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 yeah. And, 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 and it's like, it's like, you can't, you can't isolate or separate the two. Like if you design something without the intent of supporting or with the intent of supporting X, then you're not going to be supporting Y. You can't support it all. And, and I find that so many of these, whether it be the police or the platforms that we work with online or whatever are designed for an intent to support someone who is not really the communities that they on the face of it, are built to serve. Absolutely. I was talking to a, a friend the other day about like the difference between incremental change and not, right? And and the example I was using was if you imagine that, you know, America is built on like a, uh, an operating system. America is an operating system, right? And we have all this new software we want to run that's more just. Um, but the problem is it doesn't run on the operating system we have. Right. Right. It's like we want to run this Apple software, but our but we've got a Windows OS. It's, this isn't going to work. You have to use a different operating system before any of this software can actually run. So, you know, if you have, you know, God bless them, but if you have Biden suggesting, what if they just shot him in the leg? Okay, that's software that works with the current operating system, right? <laughs> so yeah, we can do that, but it's not really gonna. Whereas, yeah. oh, let's actually reconstruct how we fund and what we optimize for in our policies. And instead of optimizing for capitalist outcomes and and concentrating wealth for a very few, what if instead our policy was aimed towards um, health and wellness? What if that's the metric our policies were being uh, measured on? What if that's the thing that we knew people were going to vote for? So we have to make sure that we're keeping our voters happy that way versus keeping a small group of corporations happy. That's a different operating system. Right. <laughs> yes. That is that is not how we optimize op- optimize for policy right now. Um, what if we did, in fact, like the 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 step that Taiwan took and saying, "Hey, the students this this protest I'm talking about, the students had literally occupied Parliament." Right. If this was America, they'd be bringing out the tear gas faster than you can imagine, especially if they weren't white. Right. <laughs> like. This, this thing would be over and it would be bloody and violent. And instead, Taiwan says, oh, you know what? I think you have a point there. Why don't I make you, the leader of this movement, part of the government, right? And we're going to work with you. And you get this thing like V Taiwan, which is able to create very nuanced, subtle, implementable. That's the other factor is practicality. Sure. Implementable policy, right? That a whole bunch of arguing back and forth. Like, you know, you never... Just, just to, to, to give you an idea of like where this all went. So one of the first things that V Taiwan tackled was um, ride sharing. And they used that approach I told you where there was no replies. It was just figuring out who agreed with what. And eventually they found statements that every group agreed with. And there were statements like, you know, the five-star rating system. We think taxis should have the same five-star rating system as uh, Uber does because we think that's one of the things that makes Uber a good service. Where they eventually landed was 
um, we're going to put Uber technology in taxis, right? And this solved all sorts of problems. It was something that everybody agreed with. Um, and it's a relatively, if you think about it, relatively subtle, nuanced solution that you would never get to in a Facebook group, right? You would never get there with Congress yelling at each other. Again, it goes back to that should versus how. You would just get a bunch of people yelling back and forth, yes, Uber, no Uber. That's it. That's the only solution that would be on the table. But because VTaiwan optimized for consensus and nuance, they were able to arrive at a solution that actually made everybody relatively happy, which how often does that happen here? Sure. Yeah. Um, I feel like we we got we got we we went from a conversations about about discussions and got way bigger picture than that um for a second um but which is great because all like i said all this stuff was tied together but um to get back to the whole civil discourse conversation mm -hmm. you know one of the things that i think we see a lot in our day-to-day -day lives is we come upon discussions or um, other types of discourse that, you know, they've already started and gone down the rabbit hole of becoming uncivil. Um, mm -hmm. What techniques do you have for people to kind of bring those back out, back into some level of sanity where, where, you know, we're, we're focused on good intent rather than, rather than yelling at each other? I mean, it kind of depends what you want. There's, there's some, Groups where, like, if 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 someone can't agree to, like, the principles of a civil discussion, I'm not sure there's much right. you can do. Like, the best you can mm -hmm. do, honestly, and again, this depends on your goal, right? So, um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez talks about when people have disagreed with her, and you know, her intent in that moment isn't to convince them otherwise, because she knows that doesn't work. She knows that they're coming from a very emotional place, and she knows that fundamentally what they want is to be heard. And so what she focuses on in that conversation is just making sure that she hears them, and it's clear to them that she hears them, right? And in those rare cases where those folks have changed their minds, one of the things they cite is the fact that they walked away from their interaction with her feeling heard. They didn't change their minds in that moment. That happens later. But, but before any kind of movement right, is possible... You need to make sure that person gets heard. Now, there's a lot of people where I don't want to hear them, right? Yeah. It is going to cause me great emotional damage to hear them with no real you know, good outcome. So if your outcome, if the outcome you're, you desire is a, a, a civil discussion, there may simply be people who are not ready for that. And if you were prepared to play the long game of I'm going to hear you and get us to a point where we're, we're ready to talk to each other and you have that capacity, that's great. Um, uh, there's another story where um, Sarah Silverman, this is years ago, Sarah Silverman was on Twitter and someone, you know, used some very horrible language with her. And instead of blasting back, she looked at that person's Twitter history and kind of looked at their, you know, what they'd posted and was able to basically ascertain that this person was having some mental health issues, that was having some really difficult issues, like taking care of, I think, their elderly mother. And she was able to reach back with compassion and say, hey, it sounds like you're going through a lot. Um, and really just tried to meet them where they were. And she had the patience to do that, <laughs> right? And right, the resources right. to do that, and God bless her. But um, but, th but that was her intent in that moment wasn't to put that person down. That Her intent in that moment was to connect with that person. Um, so if that's what you're going for, for the folks who are so far gone and so like locked into their ideology and their rage, I think that's the best you can hope for. But to actually have that civil discussion, I think there are some prerequisites. I sort of call them the um, 
the rules of production, productive discourse. Um, and one is that both parties need to agree that neither of them has the answer. We walk into a lot of these conversations thinking that, well, I know what's right for the country. I know how to fix coronavirus. I know how to fix racism. I know what you should do. And if that's your attitude, it's already over. You're not going to have a civil discussion because all you're going to do is advocate for your position. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to listen because you won't, you don't think you have anything to learn. You're you more interested in, in you, winning. Exactly. Which, which, which brings us to our next uh, rule, which is neither of us is going to win. We have to agree that we're not here to win an argument. We have to agree that we're here to learn and to fix. And then the final rule is we are here to create something new, right? And that assumes that each of us has something to bring to the table. It assumes that each of us are good at our job, right? right. <laughs> that, and that we're going to build something new, which again, focuses not on what my ego or your ego. Instead, it focuses on, well, what's this thing we're making? What's this thing we're collaborating on? It's very artistic, really. So, I mean, it sounds like you're saying that one of the biggest things in determining if you even can bring a conversation back into the realm of civility is to make sure that that is actually the intent of the people who are involved. Because if it's not, then your chances of success are very low. Yeah. I mean, if, if we can't agree to those terms, okay, then you probably don't want to have a civil discussion. What you want is to yell, which I get it. Yelling is necessary, right? <laughs> we need right. to yell sometimes. Um, but that's that's a different discussion. And again, you know, if, if, we, if we agree that's what we want to do, great. Let's go yell at each other. Wonderful. Did we yell? Great. Mark that out of success. Now let's move on to the next thing. I think the problem occurs when people walk into those conversations with different agendas and I'm here to have a discussion, but you're here to yell. Okay. Um, maybe we need to go to different rooms. Mm -hmm. Right. If I, if my, if I'm here to be civil and you're here to yell, then maybe then, you know, it's an active decision on my part to say that I don't need to be involved in this because nothing yeah. good can come of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, this has been really, really great and interesting. And I um, have been really, really, and you know, this is the second time I've seen you speak at Confab and both of them were completely fascinating. And I really appreciate you coming on to talk to me today. Um, where can people find you on the, on the various places that people are finding you? And uh, what do you have that you're working on that's uh, coming up in the near future? Sure. So you can find me at uh, daviddillonthomas.com and um, you can look me up on the interwebs at, uh, on Twitter at at movie underscore pundit, P-U-N-D-I-T. And um, right now I'm working on a book called Design for Cognitive Bias. It's being released by A Book Apart in August. Um, if you go to daviddillonthomas.com, you can sign up to get updates about that. But I'm going to be talking in that book about a lot of the stuff we talked about today. Uh, that sounds amazing and I cannot wait for it to come out. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to hear more from you soon. Uh, it was great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to This Must Be The Place. You can find out more or subscribe at thismustbetheplacepodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at tmbtp underscore podcast. Our theme was composed by Will from America, and our logo was designed by Marissa Epstein. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>